Okay, turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 1. I'm going to preach a message called Jesus the Lamb of God. Jesus the Lamb of God. So, as I mentioned just a few moments ago, you know, the, the importance of the resurrection is this, that without the res- resurrection, the cross is ultimately of no effect. Because without the resurrection... All we have at the cross is a a good man who died for what he believed in. But with the resurrection, we have the surety that that man who was on the cross was who he said he was, and that's God in the flesh. That is a radically different idea. It's not just a man dying for what he believed in. Many men and women over the ages have died for what they believed in. Only one has claimed to be God, and it was confirmed by him not being held by the power of death. The resurrection puts the exclamation point on everything that we believe. All of our faith hinges on that issue, and that's why Paul told us in Romans 10, 9 and 10, you have to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You can't just believe that he went to the cross... The cross is where he bore our sin in himself, and we know it's true because God raised him from the dead. And so the two thoughts work together as one, but if we only have the cross without the resurrection, we don't have the remission of sins. That's a critical thought, and so it's the resurrection that enables everything in our faith. It's the the peace that energizes all of our faith. And so I want to emphasize that idea as we look at the cross. Because I'm actually going to take most of the message, the rest of the time, and look at the cross. One thing the Lord was highlighting to me was a piece of Jesus' nature uh, highlighted throughout his entire ministry and highlighted throughout the scripture, a part of his nature as the Lamb of God. And so I want to focus on Jesus the Lamb. But I want to emphasize it's the resurrection that causes the cross to be efficacious, to to be effectual is the word. That that without the resurrection, the cross is meaningless. And that's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, which is what I shared a few minutes ago. But uh, I want to draw our attention to Jesus, the Lamb, and I want to think about the cross. So my goal tonight is simply this. I want... To draw your attention to Jesus. That's what I'm doing this entire message. I want Jesus to be front and center in your mind and in your eyes. I want there to be a a consideration of Jesus in his nature and his character. This is what we're doing tonight. We're focusing on Jesus. So as I'm speaking... My heart is that in your mind, you're considering Christ. You're considering Jesus. Now, uh, I want to look at John 1. Because in John 1, we have the introduction of Jesus by the man who was actually commissioned to introduce him. Of course, in the other Gospels, we see... Uh, introductions of Jesus. We see the angels heralding his birth. We see uh, when he was engaging with uh, uh, the, 
the rabbis, uh, you know, in the synagogues early, but we don't have the official introduction by the man that was commissioned, who was called to introduce him. The man that was commissioned and called to introduce Jesus was John the Baptist. That was his whole life's uh, calling, to introduce Jesus to the world, to prepare the way for Jesus. So that's John the Baptist's entire ministry. We love John the Baptist, and we take much courage from his example because we believe just as John the Baptist was commissioned to introduce Jesus to the world the first time, that the Lord is releasing that forerunner spirit, that like what was on John the Baptist, that spirit of Elijah on an, on an entire generation to introduce Jesus to the world in his second coming. And so we connect to that idea in a deep way. So John the Baptist, his entire ministry was this one point that he would make the way open for Messiah. He would introduce Messiah to the earth. As a parenthesis, a side note, it's fairly mind-boggling to me that God would use a John the Baptist to introduce his perfect, precious son to the world. John the Baptist wearing camel's skins, eating locusts. I mean, wild man who is out preaching a gospel of repentance, calling out the Pharisees, calling out the Sadducees, speaking against the religious establishment, speaking against Herod himself. The most politically and religiously incorrect person on the planet is the guy that was God's chosen messenger to introduce his perfect son. You'd think he would maybe just do it a different way. You know, just get a few royalty, you know, get a few people that were couth, that, you know, just had some kind of, you know, normalcy to them, maybe higher upper echelon in in society. Da-da! Son of God is here. No, John the Baptist. You know, brood of vipers! You know, John the Baptist. I love it. It kind of it, it puts us all in the game. You, just, you don't get much weirder than that. So there you go. You know, we're all, we're all, we all qualify now because John the Baptist was awesome in his complete opposite idea of what you would imagine God to uh, introduce his son through. So here's John the Baptist in his ministry. John chapter 1, verse 29. He's baptizing people, and, 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 and he's going to introduce Jesus. And this is the moment, gang. This is the moment. This is the introduction. This is the entire culmination of John's ministry coming to one moment in time. From this moment, John's ministry begins to decrease. This is the peak. His entire ministry, calling people to repentance, it's, it's going to peak right here, and from there it continues to decrease until he is actually put to death. So this is the moment. This is the crescendo. So just think of it this way. Just like when the, the angels, you know, joy to the world on earth, peace and goodwill to men, and they declare that Messiah has come, baby born in the manger. It's that, this is that style of a moment the voice of one crying in the wilderness, he's prepared the way and now he's introducing him. So get that feeling. So then what does he say? What is the introduction that God chooses 
through the messenger to describe Messiah has come. There's many thoughts that he could have, you know, he could have used many ideas. The king is here. The judge of the nations has come. You could, he could have said the savior of the world is here. All sorts of things. The omnipotent one in flesh. I mean, there's a million ways he could have said it. Instead, we get one phrase, one sentence that is the introduction. It's a critical sentence, and it's, it's, uh, it was, it was uh, 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 oh gosh, it was intentional. That's the word. The, this phrase is completely intentional on behalf of the Father. There's a reason why. There's many reasons, but there's a, a, a clear-cut, critical reason why. Here it is. Verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There it is. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Whew. That's it. That's the introduction. That's the moment. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, just dial into your mind. Imagine him out there baptizing at the Jordan. Jesus walking up. His cousin, six months younger. There he is. And God makes it clear. The Holy Spirit had told John, the one you see the Spirit of God uh, descending and resting upon. He is the one. I'm not sure when John had the revelation. I think it's right then. It's my cousin. Woo! Awesome. Behold! He's waiting to say that line to somebody. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There he is. I have testified now that this is him. He's the Son of God. What an intense moment. So you skip ahead a few verses now, verse 34, verse 35 now. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked. There it is again. Behold the Lamb of God. See, that's the operative phrase. Behold the Lamb of God. That's the phrase John was commissioned to burn into everybody's brain. He says it two days in a row when Jesus walks up. That is the phrase we need to dial in on. It's really intentional, really important. What's odd to me about it is, we use Lamb of God often in song. Uh, We may, in conversation, occasionally throw around the term, He's the Lamb of God. But how many of us really have spent time interacting with Jesus the Lamb? It's kind of odd. You know what I'm saying? I mean, a lamb for us, I mean, it's this animal. It's not exactly godlike. You know, it's not the lion. We, you know, I would, say, I would say, if I took a poll, many of us have thought about Jesus the lion. This fierce king, the lion. We love the C.S. Lewis books and movies. Aslan, ah, Mufasa, ah. We, we love all that. But off, I, would, I would dare say that most of us are not sitting there going, the lamb, the lammy, the lamb. You know, like we're, we're just not probably spending much time meditating on 
Jesus the lamb because, well, what, what, are, lambs, what, are, what are lambs like? They're, they're not anywhere near as exciting as lions, for sure. I mean, lambs are soft and sweet. Lions are fierce and strong. We would imagine the Son of God primarily fierce and strong. Why then didn't John introduce him as, behold, the lion? Because he wanted to introduce this guiding feature of his nature, that he's a lamb. And a critical entrance to us understanding Jesus. Behold the lamb. Behold the lamb. What's a lamb like? What do you think about when you think lamb? You know, I think, I think of uh, vulnerable you know, a lamb is baby. A lamb is a baby. It's different than a ram. A ram is an adult sheep. A lamb is a baby. So you think of pure, you think of vulnerable, susceptible, meek, mild, tender, these style adjectives. No one ever thought lammy fierce. No one. John is commissioned to introduce Jesus in this way because God wants the world to connect to this feature, this reality in the nature of Jesus. Critical point. Critical point. If we skip the lamb and immediately go to the lion, or if we think the lamb was just for the first coming, the lion is coming back, we've completely missed it. Lamb is huge in his nature. In fact, lamb is such a big deal, I think, uh, that's why he's introduced that way, but I think the, the concept of lamb is, is, is so not palatable to us, we'd way rather just skip it and go to lion. Give me lion, lion's tough, lamb, that was that first coming. No, no, he's a lamb forever. In fact, he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. <laughs> That's not a feature of his nature that he sort of tucks away for, you know, just that first coming and then it's just lamb time and then later it's lion time. No, lamb is who he is from before the foundation of the world and lamb is who he is for forever. I'm going to draw that out in more detail in a minute. But this aspect of his nature is critical and this is a major deal for us that we need to really conceive of and really uh, relate to and interact with Jesus the lamb, Jesus the tender, Jesus the pure, Jesus the vulnerable, Jesus the vulnerable, Jesus the susceptible. I'm, I'm like, really? God the vulnerable? Yes, really. Can you imagine the perfect God, omnipotent, I mean, perfect in everything, making himself vulnerable. He goes, that's who I am. I'm a lamb. I'm a lamb. I'm a lamb. So it's a big deal. It's a big deal. All right. With that in mind, I want us to turn to Genesis 22. I went through and read every verse in the Bible on lamb. There's a bunch of them. Not as many in the New Testament as you would imagine. And most of the ones in the Old Testament are talking about the specifics in sacrificial, uh, you know, the sacrificial laws. 
But the first mention of the lamb is in Genesis 22. The first time the word lamb shows up in the scripture is Genesis 22. I think that's very interesting. Now, it's not that no one had ever heard of a lamb before, seen a lamb before. Obviously, uh, Adam named lamb when he first saw the lambs. You know, when they came to him, he named every animal. And when we see the narrative of Genesis 22, we, uh, we have this, uh, this obvious implication that the idea of a lamb is already well established as something that was an offering. So this concept was already, you know, well in place that lambs are offerings, lambs are offerings. But uh, Genesis 22, it's the Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah passage. And it's a, an important passage, especially as we're considering Jesus and as we're considering John's introduction of him. Okay, let's just read through it, 14 verses. Just stay with the narrative with me. Now it came to pass, after these things, that these things was Abraham spending a long time in Beersheba, which was uh, a land of the Philistines. He had made a a covenant with the, the Philistine king. After these things, that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, which means laughter, whom you love, your only son whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Verse 4, then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Three days later, he's, okay, so just, let's just pause. God says, I want you to offer your son, your only son, whom you love. You remember Abraham's journey. He's wanting a son. He's waiting. The promise is long in the coming. He, uh, he's, he goes to his wife. His wife says, no, go uh, I'm barren, go with Hagar, and she will bear you a son. That's, that's the, his wife Sarah's servant. We get Ishmael out of that. It's not what the Lord had, had, had desired. And then the Lord comes and speaks and says, I'll, in, a, in a year, I'm going to give you a son, Isaac. Sarah has a, a, a bobble in her faith. She actually laughs at the word of the Lord. I'm sure you and I have been in that place before where God's speaking a word, and we're just like, that just cannot be. How many times I just think of my own self, I go, the Lord says, this is it, this is what I'm doing. I go, man, I cannot believe that. I'm like, I need a different phrase. <laughs> I need a better phrase. I can believe it. <laughs> Something better than I can't believe it. And I think that's kind of Sarah's deal. She goes, I just can't believe that. Well, the Lord does, and they're old, 90 and 100, and, <clears throat> and Isaac comes forth, the child of promise, and his name's Laughter because she laughed. Now, here's the deal. When we have this narrative going on here in Genesis 22, Isaac could be as old as 30. Get that in your mind. As old as 30. The, the term used to describe him as son, a young man, all that, it's uh, likely that he was at least a teen, and some commentators have him as a full-grown man, some as old as 30. It was actually a term used for 30 to like 10, 10 to 30-year-olds. So, and I'll show you in a minute, he had to be bigger than 10. So, here we go. Take your son. Take the one I promise you. Take the one that's joy to you. Take laughter with you, and I want you, and you're going you're gonna to sacrifice him. And then it's three days. 
I mean, 30 minutes would have been long. Abraham gets his guys. He loads up the donkeys. They get all the details that they need for a three-day out, three-day back journey. So a week's worth of supplies. And they're carrying enough wood to make an altar, to do a fire, and to do a sacrifice that will presumably completely devour the entire offering, which is at least, at least Isaac's size. Three days. Can you imagine the sweat on that one? Because he knows. Abraham knows at the end of this, Isaac's going on the altar. Feel the weight of that one. Verse 5. And Abraham said to his young man, so he sees the place afar off. Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey, the lad and I. That's the, the term that gives us the idea that he's a little older. We go yonder and worship, and then he says this phrase, and we will come back to you. Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham knew that God would at least raise Isaac from the dead. Because he knew that he was the son of promise, he knew that God would at least raise him from the dead. I don't know what's going to happen. We're going to do this thing, and we will come back. Come on, Abraham. No wonder he's the father of faith. We will come back to you. I love that. We will come back to you. Oh, put in us that that iron rod of a backbone that believes you, God, regardless of what everything looks like. We're coming back. We're going to do the sacrifice, and we are coming back. Verse 6, so Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and the knife, and the two of them went together. So uh, a 10-year-old boy cannot carry enough wood to make his own altar and enough wood to burn up the entire sacrifice. He's got to be bigger than that. He, they put all the wood on Isaac, and he's carrying it up a mountain. He's not 10. He's probably 18. You know, he's a full-grown guy. 17, 18 are up, maybe as high as 30, which in a moment begs the question, why didn't he fight his dad off? He's 20, you got a 120-year-old guy and a 20-year-old guy. The 20-year-old guy's like, you want to do what? You, you want me to get on what? No, nah, dad, I don't think so. I'll try to catch me. You know, he's gone. That's how it would have gone down now. I was trying to play this out, thinking of my, old, my, own, my oldest son. You're going to sacrifice who? Not today, you're not. <laughs> Laid it on his son Isaac, and he took the fire, and <clears throat> so Abraham, he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. Verse 7. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father said, here I am, son. He said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? Where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Verse 8. Verse 8 is a prophecy. Verse 8 is a huge prophecy. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. 
Then they came to the place which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him for now. I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, or Jehovah Jireh, said the, said the American Southern way, Yahweh Yireh, Yahweh Yireh. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. As it is said this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So at the time that the Pentateuch's being written by Moses, it's still being said, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. It's a critical thought. I'll come back to it in a moment. All right, so let's just work through some of these parallels, because obviously by now you are have heard a message, or if you've never heard a message on it, you're still probably tracking that this is extremely parallel to God offering His only Son. And surely many that have been around the Lord have heard a message on this before. I want to draw some things out and remind you of a few things. But here's some parallels between Isaac and Jesus. Isaac is a clear type of Jesus. So the first one is, is powerful. It's that, that uh, affection in the heart of the father. God says to Abraham, get your son, your only son, the one whom you love. Remember, he says, I, I want your only son whom you love. Remember what the father said about Jesus when, when the father thundered in Twice in Jesus' uh, earthly ministry, he father, he, the Father thundered in twice, speaking audibly, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Isaac, the only son, the only uh, the rightful heir, the only son, the only rightful son of Abraham's that he's, in, that he's in love with, and Jesus, the only begotten of the Father that the Father dearly loves. So we have that parallel. Second, we have the actual mountain. So Mount Moriah, it's 50 miles, it's three days from where Abraham had been living in Beersheba. Mount Moriah is the hill complex that would be around the Temple Mount today in Jerusalem. And what you read when you read through the Genesis 22 account is clearly they showed up at that mountain complex and then Abraham and Isaac begin to go up and walk up and through the mountains. Well... The, there's two options for what they think Golgotha was, where Jesus was actually crucified in the scripture. And both of them are about a kilometer away from the Temple Mount, which would be the, the main sort of mountain of Moriah, Mount Moriah. And so Golgotha is about a kilometer away. And they, they think that the, the point of Golgotha, the guys today, the one that they, they kind of really settle in on is the highest point in, in that cluster of mountains, that Moriah uh, cluster of mountains. And so uh, it's very possible 
that Abraham had Isaac tied to that altar on the very mountaintop that Jesus was crucified on. That's so awesome. At the very least, it's, in, it's within a kilometer vicinity. But it's very possible that they're actually in the same place. So when Abraham is tying up Isaac, it's going to be 2,000 years later that the father is allowing his son to be tied to a cross. In the exact same location. That's why he had to travel 50, mi- 50, kilo- uh, 50 miles. Because God wanted it to be such a type. Okay, thirdly, Isaac carries his own wood just as Jesus carries the cross. I mean, this is such a picture of the cross in so many ways. But it's wild. He actually gives him the wood to to carry for the fire and the altar. And then there's Jesus on the Via Della Rosa carrying the cross all the way up until he, he, he can't carry it any further. John 19, 70, and he, bearing his cross, went out to the place called the place of the skull, which is in Hebrew, Golgotha. Fourthly, Isaac voluntarily submits as Jesus voluntarily submitted. And that's, that's really it. Isaac chooses not to fight his father, not to run away, but to trust his father in the whole thing. He's clearly old enough, big enough, able enough to fight his father off. Instead, he voluntarily submits. Jesus, as the Son of God, could call forth ten legions of angels at any time to deliver him. Instead, he voluntarily submits to the will of the Father. I love it. Fifthly, Isaac, though he was destined to death, he lived again. And Jesus, even though he succumbed to death, he was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father. So even in Isaac's, even in the fact of Isaac returning from Golgotha alive, we see the picture of Jesus' resurrection. Now this is a powerful, powerful type and shadow. Isaac is a picture of Jesus. Isaac, whose name's Laughter, Jesus, who goes through the cross for the joy set before him. I love it. The Lord provides a sacrifice so that laughter can live. So that joy can abound. Amen. So, this is the piece of the story that's, that got my attention, though. Isaac asked the question, where's the lamb? Abraham answers, God will provide for himself a lamb. And as he's getting ready to slay Isaac, he looks and we have a ram, a grown male sheep, not a lamb. We have a ram. And they use the ram for the sacrifice. But... After the whole sacrifice is done, Abraham comes back with the name. He names the place Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide what? A sacrifice. Future tense. 
Future tense, the Lord will provide. And so it's said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it, what? The sacrifice will be provided. <laughs> you about to get this one? There's going to be a lamb. Today we get a ram. But it will be provided. What will be? The lamb. Fast forward 2,000 years. Behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Why did John the Baptist have to introduce Jesus as the lamb? Because Jesus as the lamb is the fulfillment of Abraham's prophecy. (laughs) Behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus the lamb of God. So the question then is, you know, beating in my mind, what did Abraham really know? Because I want to know, was he in on it? Was he just throwing up like a, a random, like said, the involuntary prophecy? You know, look back later, because, man, that was a good one. That one worked. Or did he actually know? I think we've got enough evidence in the Scripture to tell us that Abraham knew. He had inside information, which is what gives us Abraham's, you know, his boldness in carrying this thing out and his boldness in the proclamation, we will return. We go, well, if he knew something, then that doesn't, that's not faith. No, no, it took a ton of faith, even if he had the word of the Lord. To still go through with it? Come on now. You got your only son. I mean, how many times do you think in those three days Abraham thought, I think I'm losing it. But we have clarity that Abraham had information about the gospel and about Jesus. Now, look at John 8. It'll come up on your screen. Jesus, explaining to the Pharisees and Sadducees, he said, he says, the the, the phrase that we always zero in on is the answer to this phrase. He says to the Pharisees and Sadducees, before Abraham was, I am. But this is the phrase that lets us in on that Abraham had more information Now, Hebrews 11 tells us Abraham was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. And that's how he had faith to sojourn in the wilderness. But Jesus tells us something more specific about what Abraham knew. John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Abraham had visions of the cross. He saw it and was glad in the past. He rejoiced to see my day. The Lord opened up to Abraham in visionary experiences, I believe, the truth of the cross, the truth of God offering his only son, the truth of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, And then, I believe, God tells Abraham, go and sacrifice your only son. So Abraham has it in his mind, this is what God is doing, and he's asking me to do something like this. 
Now I know he's given me promises about my descendants will be like the stars of the sky. So he must be planning to raise my son from the dead like he'll raise his son from the dead. Abraham has the picture that what he's going through is exactly what the father is going through. He probably doesn't conceive of the implications of what it means to be the father of faith, the father of many nations. He probably just like walking it out step by step. But he rejoiced to see Jesus' day and he was glad. Now look at this verse. Galatians 3. Scripture, verse 8, Galatians 3, 8. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, And you, all the nations, shall be blessed. So God says that to Abraham. In you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And Galatians, Paul tells us that it was actually a full gospel explanation. The way this will work, Abraham, is this. They will have faith like I'm asking you to have faith. My son will die for the sins of the world like I'm asking you to sacrifice your son. The gospel was preached to him before. Beforehand. So Abraham has insider informa- information that plumb lines him through that whole journey of offering Isaac on Mount Moriah. It's powerful. I want to draw your attention, though, back to the lamb. It shall be provided. What shall be? The sacrifice shall be provided. It shall be provided. Jehovah Jireh shall see ahead and provide a sacrifice. I'm, um, uh, how do I want to say this? We use Jehovah Jireh so often to talk about natural provision. God's going to pay your bill. I do believe God wants to pay bills. But that ain't what this is about. It's not even close to context about what this is. This is God will do the cross. God will provide a lamb. His own son. God will pay for your sins. God will resurrect him. God will see to it that you are dead in your sins. And you are risen. Because you put faith in Jesus. Jehovah Jireh will provide a sacrifice, a lamb to pay for you. That's what Jehovah Jireh is. He's the God who sees ahead, who already knows the world is completely destitute, destined for destruction. He he recognizes and conceives of the the eternally lost state of, of a world that he loves. And he goes, I will provide a sacrifice. I'm Jehovah Jireh. I will provide for myself a sacrifice. Well, was it for us or was it for him? Yes. Was it for us or for him? Yes. It was for him because he wanted us. Jehovah Jireh sees ahead. And he prophesies through Isaiah, and he prophesies through Malachi. He goes, I'm going to introduce my son. 
I'm going to use this voice. I'm going to use this wild man. I'm going to use this this man under the spirit and the power of Elijah. I'm going to use him. And I'm going to tell him, whoever you see the Holy Spirit fall on, whoever you see the Spirit come on and stay on, he's the one. Say these words. See, that phrase, behold the Lamb of God, intentional by the Father, because God wants the world to know that he's the one that's seen ahead and he has provided the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. And just as John introduced Jesus as the Lamb, and just as he said, voila, the Lamb, and just as he said it to, about him the next day, behold, the Lamb. That's still God's message to you and I today. That's still the message to the church. That's still the message to the lost. That's still the message to Israel. Can you imagine? Now, the Jews in the Passover today, they don't, they don't still actually do the, the whole Lamb meal. Maybe some Orthodox still do. But they do a shank bone of a lamb. But can you imagine for generations and generations doing the Passover meal and it's the lamb being roasted and devoured and the blood of the lamb that they they put on the doorposts in the shape of a cross. They, They come out of Israel. They come out of bondage. They come out of slavery through the sacrifice of the lamb. Can you imagine every year, Passover, a lamb, a lamb, a lamb, a lamb, a lamb, a lamb, a lamb. John the Baptist, behold, the lamb. He's the one this was pointing to, gang. That's what, he, that's what the Lord's shouting to Israel through the Passover. And it's the one he's shouting to us who are heirs by the same faith that Abraham had. We're heirs to this promise of the lamb. God will provide a lamb. Behold the lamb. Jesus the lamb. Now it's important that Jesus was introduced as the lamb. What's interesting <clears throat> is through the New Testament, you don't see Jesus referenced as the Lamb very often, just a handful of times, until you get to the book of Revelation. And here's so interesting to me. The book of Revelation, there's 35, there's 35, yay, 37 titles for the name of Je- for, for Jesus. Jesus has 35, yay, 37, depending on how you count them, titles. You know, the bright and morning star, I mean, just the root and the offspring of David, just, I mean, just title after title after title after title. The first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus has got title after title after title. title. He's called Lord. The Father is called Lord, and he's also called Lord. Now, out of the 35 titles, the number two title, in terms of the number of times it's used, is Lord. Lord. It's used about eight or ten times, depending on how you interpret the verses who it's talking about. Eight to ten times, Lord. Guess how many times he's called Lamb? Thirty. Thirty. (laughs) You think God is trying to make a point? He introduces him, behold the Lamb, stare at the Lamb, see the Lamb. See, that's the word to us today. Behold the lamb. Stare at the lamb. Stare at the lamb. Stare at, his, stare at his emotions. Stare at his nature. Stare at who the lamb is as a sacrifice. Stare at the cross. Stare at the empty tomb. But conceive of Christ as the lamb. See him as this one who makes himself susceptible even to death. 
the reality of the Lamb. So that's his introduction. But the, the eternal expression of Jesus as drawn out in the book of Revelation is Lamb, 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 Lamb. Guess who you're going to marry? The Lamb. Guess who does the wrath? Revelation 6, all the kings of the nations. They say, hide us from the wrath of the judge. Lamb. Guess who's the one that's worthy? When no one's found worthy in Revelation 5, who's the one that's found worthy? Why? Because he was slain and he redeemed us to God by his very own blood. There's only one found worthy. Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb. In all creation, every human has ever breathed a breath. None are worthy. Only one is worthy. Who? The Lamb. See, there's something in me that wants it to be the lion that's worthy. God goes, you don't understand my nature. You're so amped up on the strength of the flesh. You want something strong to lay your life down for. And I'll tell you, the the cross is strong. Jesus is strong. He goes, but you have got to swallow this. He's lamb from beginning to end. He's lamb. He's tender. He's meek. He's mild. He's lamb. Deal with this. You will marry the lamb. The lamb is the only one worthy. The lamb is the one who pours out the wrath on the nations. The lamb. Why lamb, God? Why lamb? Here's why. If he's not lamb, he can't be found worthy. Because only a lamb lays himself down voluntarily. A lion goes out with a fight. He's coming back to fight. He will come back. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Absolutely. But the lamb is the one who lays himself down. We've made a mistake. I'll correct it right now. We've said he comes in his first coming as a lamb. He's coming back as a lion. I will tell you, he came in his first coming as a lamb. And he's all lamb all the way through. He's just going to be flexing some lion muscles on his way back. But he's going to be all lamb. All lamb and all lion. He's, we don't separate who he is. We don't, we don't get into his, his nature and start parsing him out. Well, he used to be the lamb, but now he's ticked. Roar. No. He's lamb, lamb, lamb. He's lion, lion, lion. What do you think it was about him, those sweating drops of blood? That was fierce. He was just as much the lion of the tribe of Judah in that garden. As he was the Lamb of God taking away the sins of the world. Let me give them to you quick. I, I found 21 implications of Lamb in the book of Revelation. I'll just read them to you. So good. So good. Here we go. Lamb, over 30 times. Lord, 10 times. It's the next closest one. Off the top of my head, just reading through those 30, here's 21 implications of the Lamb. Only the Lamb can open the seals on the scroll. 
Only the Lamb is worthy to receive the power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing of all the nations. Only the Lamb can pour out wrath upon the nations. Only the Lamb can wash white with His blood the sins of all the nations. Only the Lamb can shepherd the redeemed and lead them to fountains of living water. Only the blood of the Lamb enables us to overcome the enemy. He was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Only the Lamb can lead the 144,000. Only the Lamb can oversee the torment of hell upon the wicked. He's doing it as the Lamb. He's actually governing hell as the Lamb. He says they're tormented in the lake of fire in the presence of the Lamb and His angels. As the Lamb. I mean, I just, I go, who are you? He never lays aside his meekness. He never lays aside his tenderness. He never lays aside that purity, that sweetness of himself. Only the lamb can overcome the beast. Only the lamb is Lord of lords and king of kings. See, if he's not a lamb, he can't handle the adoration of the nations. It's the meekness of Christ that enables him to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. If he had one strand of arrogance in him, he couldn't handle the adoration of the nations. It must be a lamb that rules for the Father. It must be a lamb. Only the lamb can marry the bride. It is the marriage supper of the lamb. The bride is known as the lamb's wife. The 12 apostles are forever known as the apostles of the lamb. It's over and over and over. The lamb is the light of the new Jerusalem. The lamb is the temple of the new Jerusalem. Only the lamb can oversee the book of life. The throne of God is the throne of the lamb. The lamb is is slain from the foundation of the world, and he is worshipped forever as the lamb. From forever to forever, he is the lamb through and through. Jesus is the lamb of God who is slain and takes away the sin of the world. He's the lamb. And so for me, what does this do? That makes me have to interact with Jesus the lamb. Here's the point I want to draw out. And I'll say five before I get to it. But here's the point. Yes, he was slain. Yes, his blood cleanses you. Yes, you're walking in newness of life because of his resurrection. Yes, yes, yes. But what does it say about Jesus that he is from forever and to forever a lamb? What does it say about how he treats you? What does it say about his tenderness? What does it say about his meekness? A lamb is a servant. See, Jesus, when he comes back, yeah, he's coming back flexing lion muscles, but he's going to come back and he is going to be the servant of nations. He's coming back, servant of rulers, He's described as. And, and, and he told his disciples, he goes, I'm going to gird myself and serve you. The marriage supper. Lamb forever, guys. So dial it in. What does that mean about how he interacts with you? 
Is he tender towards you? Is he meek and mild towards you? Fierce towards your enemies, yes. But toward you, he's lamb. Behold the lamb of God. Don't mistake lamb with weak. That lamb sweated drops of blood. That lamb willingly climbed upon a cross. Don't mistake lamb with weak. When you think lamb, think tender. And this is what we've got to grapple with, is behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then when we step across the line in sin, He's already paid it for us. And then we have to go back and look at the Lamb. We have to go back and look at the cross. We have to deal with the fact that He's still tender toward us. He just wants us to return. Behold the Lamb. Oh, it's just been my meditation this week. I just celebrating the Passover with my family on Monday and just sitting at the table and going through the whole thing and considering the resurrection. Behold the Lamb. That's what I've wanted to do all week is just stare at Jesus the Lamb. Because, you know, there's times when I need to tap into who he is as a lion, and then there's times when I need to tap into who he is as a lamb. I need to tap into it. And I just need him to speak tenderly towards me. And I just, I just feel like that for our community right now. We need to interact with the Lamb. We need to interact with the one whose blood takes away the sin of the world. We need to interact with who he is as this tender Lamb, susceptible and vulnerable, open-hearted to us. We need to interact with the Lamb of God who God has provided. The Lamb that was prophesied by Abraham, who when he shows up, is that one, that appointed sacrifice. Jesus, our lamb, our Passover lamb. Jesus, our bridegroom, who is a lamb. Behold, the marriage of the lamb has come. That's what they're going to say. When it's all said and done, and we get there on the day, it's not going to be the marriage of the lion. Behold, the marriage of the lamb. It's the most gentle one there is. Listen to me, hear me. He's the most gentle one there is. He's gentle towards you. He's gentle towards you. Some of you are way too hard on yourself. You need to tap into the gentleness of the Lamb. I, I'm convinced His gentleness will make you great. His gentleness will pull you out. Often we imagine Him smashing us as the judge. The judge is for those that are uh, arrayed against Him. The lamb is for those that will swallow it, that will accept it. This is how he wants his bride to comprehend him. The gentle lamb, the tender lamb. I'm not, ever, I'm not saying he's never tough with us, but we've got to comprehend that feature of him. Amen.